Section 21 of David and His Friends This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. David and His Friends A Series of Revival Sermons by Lewis Albert Banks David's Thirst for the Old Well And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. Second Samuel, chapter 23, verse 15 this text suggests one of the most splendid stories of all this book of hero tales, the Bible. Let us try to bring back the picture by letting our imagination clothe the outline sketches that are given here. It is easy to do so, for there is an air of romantic chivalry about it all which appeals to the fancy. It is a battlefield, and David and his knightly followers have fought bravely against tremendous odds. David has been in the thick of the fight and has led his gallant warriors to victory. Yet the Philistines, though defeated in the battle, are still camped near in great numbers, and it is only a breathing time that is left to David before the battle must come on again. David is tired out, his lips are parched with thirst, and in his thirst he remembers the old well by the gate at Bethlehem, where he had slaked his thirst a thousand times in the happy days of his youth as a shepherd lad. It all comes back to him now, and his mouth burns to taste a gourdful of that sweet, cool water from the old well and without any expectation of anyone undertaking to fulfill his wish, his fierce thirst wrung out of him the cry of the text, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. But there were among those men who followed David, some as brave and daring characters as ever lived, and three of the strongest and most valorous of these, who loved David with all their hearts, set their heads together and determined to accomplish what seemed to be impossible and bring to David his drink from the old well. That it was perilous and might cost them their lives did not count with men of their caliber. They dashed out against the enemy and cut their way through. Perhaps in the very daring of it lay its success. The Philistines were taken by surprise, and though they did everything they could with javelins and arrows to stop them, and though the men were wounded again and again, they forced their way on until they reached the cold fountain of living water by the old Bethlehem gate, and got the drink for their king. What they brought it back in, I do not know, perhaps in an old leathern water bottle, or, what is more likely, 
One of them may have taken his helmet from his head and brought that soldier's cup back full of drink to his king. They ran the gauntlet again in safety, and ere long, wounded but not defeated, they stand again before David and hand him the water for which he thirsts. What a picture that is! Yonder are the tents of the Philistines, and you hear the noise of the shouts of excitement among the enemy who have been trying to capture these brave warriors or kill them. And now David's little army are gathered about, cheering and shouting over the gallant deed of their brave comrades. And these three mighty men stand before David. And one of them, bowing before him, hands him the helmet full of water from the well of Bethlehem. He offers the sparkling drop and is happy beyond words that he may present such a gift to his king. Then the greatness of David shines forth. A very small man would have taken it as a matter of course. An average man would have been deeply touched and would have been full of thankfulness to these men for thus fulfilling his wish. But David was neither a small man nor an average man. Among the great poetic and chivalrous souls who have lived in the world, David must be counted one of the most interesting. So David lifts the helmet in his hand and then lifts his eyes up to the sky. The tears flow down his cheeks. His heart is full of worship. It is not enough to thank these men. He must thank God that he has bestowed upon him such gifts as to make it possible for him to win the love and devotion of such gallant men. And though he is thirsty and the water is tempting beyond description, he pours it out upon the ground as a libation before the Lord and says, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is not this the blood of the men that went in jeopardy of their lives? What a sight! And how those men must have loved and admired David more than ever. A deed like that showed that David was worthy of the devotion which they rendered to him. Now, I have selected this beautiful picture because it suggests to me a spiritual lesson which is as beautiful as the picture. My particular message tonight is this, that in the great struggles and experiences of our lives, it is natural for our thoughts and affections and longings to go back to the scenes and comforts and anchorages of our childhood. David remembered the old well at the gate. No other water tasted like that. And so every man remembers something precious in that early time to which, when he is tired or weary with the struggle of life, 
or needs the help that every man needs sometime in his career, he turns in his thought. I'm sure that preaching to so many young men and women who are away from home, my message cannot fail to strike a responsive chord in your hearts. Oh, men and women, don't try to forget the old well out of which you drew your childhood's blessings. It is not good for you to forget it, and it will keep heaven nearer to you and hell farther away if you will cherish it in your hearts. And deal tenderly, I pray you, with the old folks at home and those other brothers and sisters that are in the home nest. Mark Guy Pierce says that when he was about to make a trip to Australia from London, every day for weeks before he sailed, there came to him letters from all parts of the country entreating him to inquire for sons and daughters of whom nothing had been heard for months, sometimes for years. And he would take up one of those letters and dream over it. And there would rise before him a little cottage where the roses grew about the porch. And every day, as the postman passed, there would come the mother to the door. The roses faded from her cheeks and the light gone from her eyes. She hears the words so often spoken. Nothing for you today, ma'am. And she creeps back to her little kitchen and setting her arm against the old blackened mantelpiece, she rests her head. The firelight glistens in the tears and her heart swells with pain. Oh, young man, young woman, vow to God that you never will hurt the old mother by so neglecting her. A man said to me the other day, I remember how I used to be out at the plow with my father, and many a time I have seen him walk along the furrow quite quiet, with his lip bitten and the tear creeping down his cheek. And when I saw that, I knew he was thinking of his boy, who had gone away, and he had not heard from him for many a month. Some of you ought to go home this very night and write to some of those dear ones before you sleep. Oh, the loving letters I get these days from fathers and mothers about their sons and daughters. These letters breathe such a spirit of love that they bring the tears to my eyes many times as I read them, though about people who are entire strangers to me. I want you to think tonight of that old well of happy childhood associations. There was the old family Bible, the Bible your father and mother used to read, the Bible out of which your mother taught you the first Bible texts. Can there ever be any Bible just like that? At a great meeting of the American Bible Society held in Boston the other day, Dr. Plum spoke on the theme, Christ's Reverence for the Old Testament. 
and he referred to the sayings of some so-called literary critics of the Bible, that we must come to the Old Testament without any prepositions in its favor. Then he drew from his pocket an old-fashioned little book and opened it at the flyleaf and began to read in tender tones the inscription thereon. At first, no one understood just what it was, but as he proceeded, his hearers perceived that he was reading from his mother's Bible, her maiden name and then her married name. And as he read, everyone could feel as the speaker plainly felt, and that very deeply, all the hallowed memories and associations of the saintly life that seemed embalmed in the volume which he was reverently handling. All her life she lived by it, he continued, and all my lifetime since she left it to me, I have carried it, the pillow of a dying saint and the staff of a man's own life. This is the book that I am told I must approach without any prepossessions. Dear friends, I call you back to your mother's Bible tonight and to all that early faith so sweet and pure and precious. Some of you have been getting away from it, a long way from it, since you came to the city. You have been accustomed to eat your meals at a table where no blessing was asked on the food and where, in the conversation, it was popular to sneer at the Bible and at the church. You've been going to the theater and you have heard prayer and home religion and married love and all the pure things that were once the great pillars of your thoughts about life used to point jokes and puns and to give barbs for sneers. At first it shocked you to hear all this, and you didn't like it, but you are getting used to it now. You're not the happier because you're getting used to it, and you know very well that you are not the better because you're getting used to it. Now the thing I want to tell you, just as honestly and just as plainly as I can, and yet, with all the sympathy and tenderness of my heart, is that notwithstanding all these jokes and sneers and all this foolish pride that you have in feeling that you're beginning to be a man or a woman of the world, whatever that may mean, there will come a good many times in your life, and they will be the most important times, when you would give everything if you could have a drink of water from the old well in the Christian home where you were brought up. Someday, some great disappointment will come into your life. Maybe it will be business trouble. You will find yourself, after doing the very best you can, at the end of your rope, and it will look like failure. You will plan and scheme until your head aches and your heart aches over it all. And there will be a feeling 
though you may not put it into words. I wish I could have the old simple faith in God and the old childlike prayer that father and mother used to have when they were troubled about anything. If I could just talk it over with the Lord as they did and lay my aching head and my sore heart down on God's promises, what a comfort it would be. Perhaps you have a home of your own, and the children are beginning to come up around you like little sprouts about a tree in the orchard. How dear they are to you. How they comfort you in the midst of all your work for them. How wonderfully their childish prattle, their tender little caresses, and their loving trustfulness compensate us for all the harder work to care for them. But someday... One of them is sick. The little face is flushed with fever. The doctor comes, and though he speaks bravely enough, looks a little anxious, and says he will be in again in the morning. The little face is so hot at night that you go and bring him, and when he comes again, he shakes his head and looks grave. And then, those anxious days that follow, and those nights. I've been through them, and I know. Oh, the terror of it, and the awfulness of it, of feeling that a little life is slipping out of your hands, a life that is dearer to you than your own life is slipping out of your arms, and you cannot hold on to it. And at last, it is gone. And you take the little thing, cold and still now, with all the laughter gone out of the eyes and the dimples out of the cheeks, and you put it in the little white coffin and cover it over with flowers, which sometimes seemed to me to make death harder than ever as though they mocked us, and you lay it away out of your sight. Oh, my brother, I have been through that, and I know there is only one thing on earth that can comfort you in an hour like that, and that is a drink of water from the old well of your mother's Bible and your father's prayer to God the simple prayer they taught you to say when you were a child. Then there come times when, do your best, you cannot lull your conscience to sleep. Days and nights when it rouses up to full life and will be heard when it points a sad, accusing finger at you and you stand condemned before God's court, held in the courtroom in your own breast, and you know and feel that life is passing, and whatever the world may say or think, you are making a failure of it. All your successes pall on you, and you feel that everything you have won is transitory and will soon be gone. And if they could last, they do not and cannot make you happy. Oh, brothers, sisters, 
There is only one thing can save you in such hours and from such hours, and that is a drink of the water of life from the old well of God's infinite love in Jesus Christ. Then, some of these days, you're going to be called to go out into the eternal world. In youth and health, one may often drown care with excitement and jollity, but there comes a time when the doctor will not allow any excitement, when the doorbell is muffled lest it make you nervous, when your friends are not allowed to see you, and all alone, you must face the problems of your own conscience, your past life, your relation to God and eternity. In such an hour, there is only one cordial that gives the soul courage and nerves it for the great ordeal of the dying hour, and that is a drought of the water of life from the well of faith in God's mercy through Jesus Christ. In such an hour, how glorious it will be if Jesus is there to whisper to you with tender love. In my Father's house are many mansions. I have prepared a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. When you get close to the dark stream, you shall not be afraid, for I am the good shepherd, and my rod and my staff shall comfort you. Trust Christ now. Give him your heart now and he will stand by you then. But someone says, I know I need these things. You cannot tell me anything new about that. And the loneliness and trouble and sorrows that come to me, I know I need God and the Bible and prayer and the Savior. But I have gone so far away from them that I do not know how to get back. It is easy enough for you to say, come back to Christ. But there are all these years of indifference and wicked habit and sinful ways between me and those holy realities of my childhood, and I cannot get back to them. Oh, my brother, God can take you back in just one step, if you will. Ah, it would be a long journey if you tried to go back step by step the way you came. You never could do that. No man could do that. But there is a shortcut. It goes by the cross where Jesus died in your stead. And if you will just take him at his word tonight, Christ will make all the journey for you. And because he died for you, God will lay the burden of your sins on his shoulders, and you may be free I bring you the old well tonight, the old Bible, your mother's God, the simple prayer of your childhood, the Savior you used to wonder about when you pictured him as a little babe in Bethlehem. I bring him to you tonight. God bless you. He is able to save you. End of section 21. Read by your book voice, Carrie Adams, in Mesa, Arizona, 
August 17, 2021.